0: Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. I'm Afua Hirsch. I'm Peter Frankopan. And in our podcast, Legacy, we explore the lives of some of the biggest characters in history. This season, we're exploring the life of Cleopatra. An iconic life full of romances, sieges and tragedy. But who was the real Cleopatra? It feels like her story's been told by others with their own agenda for centuries. But her legacy is enduring, and so we're going to dive into how her story has evolved all the way up to today. I am so excited to talk about Cleopatra Peter. She is an icon.
1: Welcome to Hampton Court Palace. On a glorious spring day, I'm standing outside the front of Henry VIII's Palace of Pleasure, one of his four favorite palaces, also Whitehall and Greenwich, and of course, Windsor. But Hampton Court was his Palace of Pleasure because it was a place he could come to, to hunt, to escape the plague, to play tennis, to play bowls. It had been a palace that belonged to Cardinal Thomas Wolsey. Before that it was used by the Knights Hospitalia and in 1514 Wolsey took out a 99 year lease on it and built the front of the palace that we see today, the Tudor Palace that is. It's a palace of two halves of course, half of the palace is actually Baroque built in the late 17th century. But Wolsey's palace is the brick palace, the sort of cutting edge Renaissance fabric of the time and has been built with diaper work, which is the burnt ends of the bricks that form lozenge patterns in the brick. Right now, Hampton Court's gatehouse is about half the size it would have been, it would have been more like that of St. James's Palace. And on the front, we see two terracotta roundels which were commissioned by Wolsey in 1521 from the Florentine sculptor Giovanni di Maiano. They're busts of Roman emperors, and they, I suppose, tell us about his classical learning. But they also tell us that a little learning is a dangerous thing, because at the front here, to symbolise good rule, he has Tiberius and Nero. I'm going over the moat now it was never a defensible structure despite the crenellations that are meant to make it look like a castle and now i'm in base court which is the first courtyard of hampton court it's very big i'd say it's close to 250 square feet and it was a courtyard built by wolsey it was intended to be a place to entertain so even when Wolsey who of course was on the rise built this place he intended it to be used by the king and queen and he built 40 apartments around this courtyard which each had two rooms and a guard rope i.e loo, and had also a fireplace. So these were places where people could come and stay, and indeed visiting French ambassadors were entertained here in 1527. There were rooms built for the king and queen as well in the next courtyard, Clock Court. So from the start, this was intended to be at Henry's disposal, but nevertheless, there's no denying that Wolsey also used it for his own aggrandizement. We know of Wolsey that when he processed from his palace at York Place, later called Whitehall, to Westminster as Lord Chancellor, that he travelled in great pomp and ceremony with his cardinal's hat and the pillar and the keys, the symbols of his office being carried before him in great procession. And Hampton Court, in a similar way, testified to his glory as a Prince of the Church just as much as it testified to Henry VIII's temporal glory. I've come in out of the wind to look through one of the leaded windows at Base Court. There is a fountain, or at least a model of a fountain, at the centre of Base Court today. In 2010 some archaeological work was done here to take up the floor which at that point had been laid to grass, making the courtyard look a bit like the quad or a court of an Oxbridge College. But that wasn't at all how the Tudors used the space. They used the space as a place of great activity. You You have to imagine it being filled with horses and dogs and people milling around. And one of the things they discovered is that there was some sort of conduit or water pipe under the courtyard and The fountain is a recreation of the fountain in the Field of Cloth of Gold, which you can also see at Hampton Court usually. And at the Field of Cloth of Gold, Henry VIII had a temporary palace thrown up. And in front of that temporary palace, he had a fountain that ran with wine. And so atop this fountain, we have Bacchus, the god of wine, and it says on it, Make good cheer, who wishes. Fais bon cher qui voudra. I don't know if it still runs with wine. Might have to go and put a cup to it and see what happens. The second courtyard at Hampton Court is a rather different one. The first thing you might notice is that if you look over to your right as you enter, there are Corinthian columns topped with a balustrade. And this is because in the late 17th century, William and Mary rather liked Hampton Court's position away from London but they also thought that it was rather old-fashioned. They didn't like the pokey little leaded windows and they wanted instead something with big picture windows that could look out onto the gardens that they wanted to create. And so... They knocked quite a lot of the Tudor Palace down. That means that you come today and you can't see Henry VIII's bedchamber, his privy chamber, his presence chamber, have all been knocked through. And the door that would have led to them from the Great Watching Chamber now leads to a brick wall. But thankfully, from the point of view of a Tudorist, William and Mary ran out of money. And Mary actually died during the building of Hampton Court. So they stopped... And some of the Tudor Palace survives. They had originally thought they would just keep the Great Hall. But just in case you entered Hampton Court from what they consider to be the wrong angle, they put this piece of classical architecture right slap-bang in the middle of this Renaissance Palace. And it is quite a contrast. Here we have on the outside the Great Hall, built by Henry VIII in the 1530s. Henry and Anne I should say really because Anne Boleyn was also very interested in architecture and the pair of them came down often to Hampton Court to look at the progress and we know that candles were issued to the workmen so they could work late into the night and this is rebuilding the great hall that Worsey had had here and also here we have some more of the terracotta roundels we have Worsey's badge his coat of arms and above it we have the astronomical clock this was created by Nicholas Kratzer in 1543 and it shows the zodiac signs and it shows the sun going around the earth. Of course 1543 was the year that Nicholas Copernicus's On the Revolution of the Heavenly Spheres was published posthumously so the clock was sort of out of date as soon as it had been created but Copernican theory took a while to catch on. The other thing about this gorgeous astronomical clock is that it shows the time of the tides because the main way that you would get to Hampton Court at this point in time was to come upriver from London and you would do so using the tides. Now to go up to the State Apartments one has to pass under Anne Gatehouse. And although much of this was recreated in the 19th century, recreating a lost original, we can still see what this would have looked like. And what it is, is heraldry. One looks up at a Tudor rose, because of course Henry VIII was a descendant of Henry VII and Elizabeth of York, who brought together the warring houses of Lancaster and York, we have here the Fleur de Lis because Henry considered himself to be King of France, which would have come as news to the King of France. But of course, since the Hundred Years' War, despite having lost most of Gascony and Normandy, the English still had a toehold in France in the form of Calais, which wasn't lost till 1558. We also have here the Portcullis, which was Margaret Beaufort's badge. It's a play on her name Beaufort, Strong Fort. And here we have a portcullis to demonstrate that. And we have the falcon, Anne Boleyn's badge from the time of her marriage. And H&A, Henry and Anne, H&A intertwined in a lover's knot. Now I'm going upstairs into the Great Hall. Just as one comes into the Great Hall, at first one enters the Screens Passage. And above the door to the buttery, in the spandrels, we have the Tudor rose and the pomegranate, which of course is a symbol of Catherine of Aragon, because she had come from Granada, which her parents, Ferdinand of Aragon and Isabel of Castile, had conquered from the Muslims in 1492. You imagine her coming from that warm, sunny place of jasmine and orange blossom arriving at Plymouth in November. And then one comes into the Great Hall itself and it is a spectacular space. It has a hammer beam ceiling, which was originally painted gold and red and blue, which has these lovely corbels that hang down and these little faces called eavesdroppers. It would have been brightly painted. The floor would have been green and white tar, which is the colour of Tudor livery. And on the walls, we have still the Abraham tapestries. The Abraham tapestries were commissioned by Henry VIII in 1540. They took three years to make. They cost 2,000 pounds, which is the cost of a warship. And six of them are on display today. They are literally priceless. Four of them, there are 10 in total, four of them are being worked on in conservation terms at any one time. And they're much faded today. Exposed to the light, the colors have tarnished. They were made of cloth of gold, which is spirals of gold through which silk was threaded. What were once highlights are now lowlights. But also much of the dye has not sustained its color. But they were originally neon. Some years ago, the University of Manchester did an experiment in which they looked at the back of the tapestries, which haven't faded from the light, and they projected that missing light back onto the front. You can find this on YouTube. And it gives you a sense of the sort of assault sort of colour that there would have been when someone walked into this great hall, saw the green and white tile, and saw the coloured ceiling, and saw the Abraham tapestries. And they're incredible examples of Renaissance art because you know you really can believe the beings, human shapes underneath the clothes that they wear. And they tell the story of Genesis 12 to 24 in which Abraham has a relationship with God and late in life is given a son and has a special mission to lead his people out. It's something that Henry took to heart. And these were commissioned to commemorate the birth of Prince Edward here at Hampton Court. A song given late in life to a king who thought that he too had been given a mission by God.
0: Did you know that the earliest condoms were made of animal guts and they were designed to be reused? or that beans were once considered to be an aphrodisiac. Join me, Betwixt the Sheets, The History of Sex, Scandal and Society, a new podcast from History Hit, where I, Kate Lister, ask the questions about the stuff we didn't learn in history lessons, or sex ed. We'll be bed-hopping around different time periods, from ancient civilisations to the Middle Ages, to Renaissance and early modern, right up to now. Listen and subscribe to Betwixt the Sheets now wherever you get your podcasts. Join us this month on Gone Medieval from History Hit. I'm Matt Lewis. And I'm Eleanor Janager.
1: I've moved through now into the great watching chamber. So called because it was a place where people waited and watched for Henry VIII to emerge from his privy chambers where they might have an opportunity to petition him, to grab him, to make their suit to him at a time when proximity to the king was everything that mattered. It has a beautiful golden geometric ribbed ceiling In between the ribs, there are leather mache badges. Do you remember making papier-mâché as a child? Well, it's that, but with leather. And these are badges. Again, we have the fleur-de-lis, the Tudor rose, the portcullis, but now amongst them, we also have Jane Seymour's badge because the Great Watching Chamber was completed when Jane Seymour was queen. And her badge is a phoenix rising from a rose bush. Rising from a castle. In here, there are tapestries that are earlier than the Abraham tapestries. These are from the 1520s. And they belonged to Cardinal Wolsey. Wolsey had about 600 tapestries at a time when a wealthy man might have 50, and a very wealthy man might have 150. Among them is one that has Wolsey's badge and his motto, Dominus Mickey Aditor," the Lord is my judge or my guide, depending on how you look at it. Moving now into the processional route, currently hung with Arras so as it would have been when Henry VIII visited. There's a beautiful portrait here by Hans Holbein of William Reskimer, one of the pages. Pages weren't of a lowly status. They would have been those who became pages in the King's Chamber. And therefore they tended to come from rich and powerful families. I love walking through this processional route because I know that I'm walking in Henry VIII's footsteps. That he would have emerged from his privy chambers on high days and holy days, dressed in his crown and fine robes, and processed along this route to the holy day closet or the royal pew. As people waited for the king to emerge one of the things they did was carve graffiti into the stone window sills. So we have got a ragged staff here from the Dudleys. got people carving around their hands. And we've got people playing tic-tac-toe or noughts and crosses. Also here we have a view of Hampton Court from 1660. The thing to note about Hampton Court is that it was once covered with onion domes, much in the same way as the White Tower at the Tower of London now is. There were chimneys, and we can see chimneys in this picture, but the chimneys that we have here today, well, many of them come from the re-Tudorisation of the 1840s when the palace was opened to the public for the first time and Edward Jesse, the curator at the time, re it putting in armor and putting in stags heads and all sorts of other devices that he thought were appropriate and one of the things that was done was to put back in huge numbers of chimneys. Much is authentic and original at Hampton Court but the chimneys sadly mostly are not. This processional route is associated historically, well, mythically perhaps, with Catherine Howard. It is said that when Archbishop Cramer revealed to Henry VIII the rumours about her adultery, which he did by putting a letter on Henry's chair in the chapel, Catherine tried to get at Henry. And indeed, that would have been a successful policy, I think, We can see, through the example of Catherine Parr, that getting to Henry after some terrible news had been disclosed to him was the only way to win him back. Anne Boleyn didn't get a chance, and Catherine Howard didn't get a chance either. The story goes that she ran towards the chapel to try to get to Henry, and guards dragged her screaming back towards her apartments. And the ghost is said to do just that. There's a problem, unfortunately, with geography of where the chapel is and where Catherine's rooms were. But let's not let that spoil the story. One thing that certainly is true is that Catherine's household were told in the great watching chamber here at Hampton Court, the news and were dismissed. Henry apparently was very reluctant to believe the accusations made against her, but reluctantly ordered an investigation. He had of course been burned before. One of the pictures here at Hampton Court is called The Family of Henry VIII. It was painted in 1545 when Catherine Parr was Henry's wife. Henry and Catherine were married here at Hampton Court on the 12th of July, 1543, in the Queen's closet. Only 19 of them at the wedding. Henry tended to have quite small weddings, despite how many times he liked to have them. And the picture shows Mary and Elizabeth and Edward at Henry's right hand. And then it shows one of his wives, not Catherine Parr, who was the wife at the time, though I wonder whether the artist used her body as a prop, but it certainly has the head of Jane Seymour. And this is because Jane had done the honourable thing, she'd given birth to Edward and produced the male heir that Henry longed for and then had died before she had a chance to blot her copybook She actually went through a terrible childbirth experience, it took three days and two nights and it was as a result of childbed fever which is an infection caught in the process of giving birth that she died a couple of weeks after Edward's birth. She's buried at Windsor in St George's Chapel along with Henry VIII under a black slab but her heart is buried here because She was embalmed before she processed to Windsor. But the thing I particularly like about this portrait showing the dynasty, the family of Henry VIII, is that in the two archways, or two other characters, we have Jane the Fool, and Will Summer, Henry VIII's Fool, and this tells us something about the prized place that natural fools had at Henry VIII's court, important enough to be included in a picture of his family. The chapel here at Hampton Court is still a working chapel. It's a royal peculiar and it has an amazing choir of boys and men and its ceiling is the ceiling that Henry VIII installed. It has his motto, and indeed the motto of English kings from 1413 onwards, Dieu et mon droit, God and my right. Inside now, it's covered with Norwegian oak, a baroque installation. But originally, there would have been stained glass. And even at the far end, above the altar, there was a stained glass installation of Henry and Catherine and Mary and St. George. And this remained here throughout Edward's reign, which of course was a time of iconoclasm, it remained even up until the Commonwealth. And I like to think of the fact that all of the other queens, Anne and Jane, Anne, Catherine and Catherine, who came here would have seen Henry's first queen, Catherine of Aragon, depicted in stained glass in the chapel before them. I mentioned the onion domes. I've now come out into chapel court, which is something that people often miss here. Right next to the chapel, it is where Edward VI's apartments were. It's where Henry's council chamber looks out onto and it's where one of Henry's tennis courts, his indoor tennis court for real tennis was. And I like it because it speaks to us of the sides of Henry's character, his search for an heir, his pursuit of sport, his governance and his role as king, and of course, his struggle with religion throughout his life, his preoccupation with theology and with getting things right, and yet he got them quite often horribly wrong. And in this courtyard, one can see an onion dome, one of two that survives here at Hampton Court and gives us an impression of what it would have looked like. I'm walking down an empty corridor. As you can hear, there are lots of children running around today normally. But here, I'm alone, and I'm walking in the space between the court and the service wing of the palace, which is where the great kitchens were. The great kitchens which were built in the 1530s to be able to feed the court, which could be a thousand people, maybe 200 of them women. And about 600 people had bouche of court, which is to say they were fed at the court's expense in meals at 10 a.m. and 4 p.m. And that meant a huge number of people operating in this space. In the great kitchens roasting meat spit boys turning turning the meat at the spit in order to keep all those juices in as well as meat that was boiled and put in pies meat of course was the choice that you would make if you could afford it those who couldn't afford it would eat the white meats and if you couldn't afford the white meats then you'd eat vegetables And this corridor runs next to the Great Hall and there are stairs at each end, one to take the food up to the screens passage for those at that end of the hall and one to take it up to the dais end of the hall where those who were of greater status would sit. Henry himself didn't often actually eat in the Great Hall and his food was not prepared in the Great Kitchens. He had his own privy kitchen but certainly many people were fed when the court was in residence. One of the things I like about the kitchens is that you have to imagine huge numbers of people, mostly men and boys, the court was mostly dominated by males, and they were told repeatedly not to run around naked. You only get told something repeatedly when you're not doing it, not paying attention. So I think it gives us an insight into how very hot those kitchens got. And back once more into base court with the flag flying high and looking at this marvelous palace. So marvelous that John Skelton joked, why come ye not to the court, to the King's court or to Hampton court? But Henry VIII would get his hands on it before too long and make it his very own. He spent in the end some 60,000 pounds on expanding it. That's about 18 million pounds in today's money. He made it into one of the most sumptuous palaces in Europe. And the wonder of walking around it today is that although he's long gone, there's a sense that only time and not space separates you from the people of the past. And thank you so much for listening to Not Just the Tudors. Take a moment, if you would, to rate the podcast wherever you listen to it, including on Spotify. It really helps new listeners find the show, and we want to spread the Tudor and Not Just the Tudor love. And you can also have your additional weekly booster jab with our Tudor Tuesday newsletter with news of History Hit's best podcasts, articles and films. Find out more at historyhit.com. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age,